and welcome back to another episode of the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast. My name is Michael. I'm your host. And today's episode is for you folks specifically that did not draw an elk tag. The, uh, the results of the elk draw just came out this week. And like me, a lot of people out there are disappointed they did not draw a tag. So the good news is, though, there is a plethora of opportunities still out there for you. And I am talking about small game. And there's a lot of big game hunters out there that scoff at this, but I'm telling you, you're missing out. Small game hunting is a blast. I enjoy it just as much as I do big game hunting. Further, I'll tell you what, squirrel hunting with a 22 rifle made me a better big game hunter. It taught me how to shoot. It taught me how to breathe when I'm shooting. It taught me how to squeeze that trigger. Uh, it's, it's, it's not only good practice for hunting larger animals, but it's also excellent table fare, as is all of our small game. So in this episode, we're going to sit down with Arizona Game and Fish Department's own Larissa Harding, and we are going to talk about all of this opportunity we have here in Arizona at our fingertips. So stick around, listen to that, and by all means, take advantage of it. But first, let's go through a few announcements from some of our great conservation organizations here in Arizona. So right off the bat, as a reminder, uh, the Arizona Game and Fish Department Expo is going to be held Saturday, April 2nd and Sunday the 3rd. I'm going to be there along with the Arizona Wildlife Federation. Uh, all of these great conservation organizations we've talked about are going to be in attendance. So come by, say hello to us, say hello to them. It's a good time. Also, there's rumors BHA will be holding a pint night that Saturday night. So no location yet, but keep your ear peeled, your eyes peeled, your ears open, and uh, and look for that. As soon as, uh, if that gets up before I publish this, I will put it in the show notes. Otherwise, just give them a Google search, look at their Facebook page, Instagram page, and you'll get that information there. Another reminder, uh... Valley of the Sun Quail Forever is holding a rattlesnake avoidance training for your pups. Uh, this is very important. Uh, I've done it with my dog. Um, and this, this exact same training with Guy Mollycone. It is worth the money. This is on at 7.30 a.m. to 10 a.m. on Saturday, April 9th. Uh, location I will put in the show notes. It's $100 for the first time, $50 for a recheck. So whether your dog is a hunting dog or not, save yourself some money, some heartache, and, and go get your dog trained to avoid rattlesnakes. Okay, next up, and I think finally, we have the Arizona Fly, Flycasters Club. They're having a huge parking lot sale. This is gonna be Saturday, March 19th, from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. This is gonna be at the Arizona American Italian Club parking lot. That's 7509 North 12th Street in Phoenix, Arizona, 85020. This is going to be in lieu of their annual banquet, which is canceled due to COVID, uh, but it's a terrific way for them to raise funds in support of their education and conservation programs. Now, they have a lengthy list of items that are going to be available here. Fly rods, 20 like new sage rods, various weights starting at $50, 40 various other fly rods ready from St. Croix, handcrafted, various weights, Starting at $25, 30 fly reels, 30 new fly lines, hundreds of flies, and the list goes on and on and on. Everything from rafts to float tubes to books to fly tying materials. 
uh, man, I'm going to be out of town, but I'm kind of, uh, I'm unhappy that I'm missing this. So that's it for this episode's announcements. Um, I hope you enjoy this, this conversation with Larissa. Again, I, I am an advocate for small game hunting. It's something I love very much. It takes me right back to my childhood. Um, I do it with my boy now. He harvested his first squirrel this year and he's pretty excited about that. And, uh, yeah, I just, I don't get tired of it. Um, it's, it's a good problem to have. My hunting season is so full. Um, I have so many opportunities and, and mind you, I rarely draw tags. I put in for everything every year and I put a lot of thought into it. That doesn't guarantee me tags. Um, but when I don't draw tags, it's not a problem. I have a ton of opportunity in the state and I take full advantage of it. And, uh, I have a great time because of that. So listen to this episode with Larissa and I, and, uh, yeah, take some notes and next year, look forward to a lot of fun. Thanks so much. All right, here we are with the Arizona Game and Fish Department Statewide Small Game Program Manager, Larissa Harding. Welcome, Larissa. How are you? Thanks. I'm good. Thanks. Nice to be here. Awesome. All right, so let's uh, let's start out just uh, hearing a bit about you. Where are you from? How did you, you know, did you spend your life in the outdoors? How did you get into conservation? And how did you ultimately end up here at the department? Okay, that's a lot. <laughs> Um, I grew up in the South. Uh, I'm originally from Tennessee, but uh, grew up in Florida and Tennessee primarily as a kid and a teenager. Lots of outdoor activity, camping, hiking, biking, swimming, boating, uh, but not hunting. Um, I did grow up looking at animals. I was always interested in wildlife and Loved the outdoors, did a lot of tracking and trailing even as a kid, uh, even if that was chasing down lizards and snakes, <laughs> but also looking at uh, mostly predator tracks and deer and other things and trying to trail those animals. Um, I went away to Utah for a bachelor's and master's, and Utah is a, an outdoor wonderland with mountains and red rock and lots of different wildlife species and got involved as an undergrad working on black bears in Utah and spent about 20 years doing black bear den work. That's a dream job for, it, for young field biologists. It is. And, the, you know, all those big charismatic carnivores are just, uh, it's hard to get into that. But I got lucky and got to spend a lot of time in the field uh, doing habitat work, did a master's project with black bears, looking at behaviors and ecology and and then um, went on to New Mexico uh, for a PhD in evolutionary biology and genetics and got to look at species and speciation processes with another, a smaller charismatic carnivore uh, group, the mustelids, and particularly the weasels. And so that was a lot of fun. And went away to Sweden, went away to northern Sweden for postdoc time and looking at more global processes of speciation and tying that with earth, earth history and genetics and lots of cool stuff in the paleo record. And then came back here, ended up here in Arizona. I've been here for about 10 years. Uh, started here as the terrestrial um, research program lead for the state and then made the transition over here about three years ago to the statewide small game program lead. Wow, that's that's quite a resume. Um, so let me ask you this. 
how do you compare, like for me, I'm, I'm from the Missouri Ozarks, which is going to be similar to Tennessee, of course. Mm -hmm. And, you know, while the Ozarks are very near and dear to me and I miss those rivers and, and the, the sounds of insects at night, for me, it just doesn't compare to what we have out here in the West. You know, all these public lands, all this diversity of habitat types, and of course, which equates to diversity of, of wildlife. Um, it just blows me away. And, you know, my wife and I, both of our families are back in Missouri. So it's been a struggle, you know, especially having small children sure. to not go back. But, but yeah, I don't think I can leave the West. I just love it. That's, I have a big family and they're all back East and they keep, you know, the draw is very strong to say, come back to East Tennessee. And I just keep saying, sorry, all my training's in the West. I have to stay out here Yeah. because yeah, there's just nothing that compares to, you know, the desert ecosystems, the Alpine ecosystems, the, the wide open space. The fact that, like you say, we have all these public lands. We're not landlocked with private lands like they are in a lot mm -hmm. of the East um, I kind of feel like Tennessee is either private land or national park. And so it's really hard to find a lot of public land that you just have the freedom to roam and the freedom to hunt and the freedom to explore in the same way that we do here in the West. Right. Yeah, I'll, I'll add, um, you know, I'm, I'm 46 and, and a lot of things have changed since I was a child, you know, I mean, first off, when at a certain age, I, we just went where we wanted to. We hopped fences and did right. whatever. We were just small children. But then as we got older, you know, all we had to do was go knock on doors to get permission to, to hunt or fish or, or whatever we wanted to do. And it's not like that these days. It's, it's all locked up in leases. You know, it's a, it's a pay-to-play type system. And, you know, for me, I, I want my kids to have the opportunities to roam and explore, you know, in these wild places. So, so yeah, it's... Uh, I'll never go back for more than a visit. I do miss it and I do love it, but, but yeah, this is home now. Yeah, I would agree. I, I love the West and yeah, I just love the, the freedom that we have and the opportunities that are here that, you know, I love being able to go from the low desert to the high Alpine tundra almost in Arizona in a matter of an hour or two. <laughs> right. That's, that's a good so. segue. Um, you know, all that diversity of habitat, of course, equates to diversity of wildlife. And in this game, diversity of, or in this instance, diversity of small game species. Um, and yeah. that, that's what we're here to talk about today. I personally am extremely passionate about Jason small game. I, I just, I love it. I get as much enjoyment and people think I'm crazy, but chasing squirrels as I do chasing elk, um, as I do chasing quail. I really love it all. So uh, with that, before we move into the small game opportunity here in Arizona, which we have a great deal of, let's talk about what what it looks like to be a, the small game program manager at Arizona Game and Fish Department. What's your, I think uh, it depends on the day. Um, like you say, there's a lot of opportunity for small game here in Arizona. We have, you know, four native species of quail. We have at least three or four species of cottontail and, and jackrabbit. Maybe five, <laughs> maybe even six if we've got pikas. Um, you know, we've got uh, four species of tree squirrel. We've got, I mean, there's a, a variety, three species of doves that you can hunt. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity. And then some of the other upland birds and, and things here. And so it just depends on the season. It depends on the, uh, you know, what we've got activities going. We, we do everything in this job from animal surveys, monitoring and, and counting and looking at trends in numbers and, and, you know, call counts even, um, 
and then looking at actual animals. We uh, do research. We do uh, a lot of outreach camps and, and those kinds of activities to get people excited about small game. Uh, like you, I'm super excited about small game and, and the opportunities there, and I don't think it's just a kid's sport. Um, it's, it's a great uh, gateway to hunting in general because you're almost always guaranteed a, something. You can bring something home as opposed to not filling a tag and spending, you know, a week out trying to chase a deer, or even a javelina or an elk and, and not filling a tag. Um, if you chase squirrels, chances are you might get one or two <laughs> in a day. And, uh, and so, you know, we do a lot of, I do, I do end up doing a lot of, uh, office work here and there in the seasons because we do a lot of, um, hunt regulations and hunt guidelines and those kinds of things are also part of the small game world like they are the big game world um and then just you know being out doing hunter check stations talking to hunters and uh, a lot of education i think small game you don't manage like we do big game on numbers as much as trends and looking at you know abundance this year versus abundance last year type of thing there's not a lot that we can do on the ground for small game because so many of those species are more dependent on precipitation and, and whether we get rain and, or snow, you know, in the right time of year. And, and so small game, I think, is a lot more about the two-leggeds than the four-leggeds in some cases and, and being able to teach and, and outreach to those to people rather than trying to deal specifically with numbers of small game species on the ground. Gotcha. Yeah, I've, I've heard it put, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I've heard it put that, you know, it's not as vital to limit seasons or, or limits because in, say, a poor year for Gamble's quail, those hunters, they're not going to spend as much time and put in as much hard work in the field if there's not as many birds. So it's kind of kind of self-balancing. Is that accurate? That's pretty accurate. I'd say most of our quail hunters are, are self-regulating in that way. You mm -hmm. know, they go out once or twice and it is, it is very labor intensive mm -hmm. to chase a bunch of uh, quail. And so if there aren't a lot of quail out there, you know, you and or your dog is, is spending a lot of time on the ground. Um, and yeah, if the hunter comes home and feels like I only ran into a covey or two and I spent the whole day, then maybe I'm not going to go out or be as willing to go out as you might be, you know, otherwise with the big game species. Right. Well, I'll tell you what, let's let's go ahead and just talk about quail some more and we'll just jump right into all this all this great opportunity we have in the state. Um, you know, here in Arizona, we've got four species and you jump in and correct me if I make any mistakes, um, one of which we, we don't get to hunt. That's the masked bob white. Um, down in southern, I would say southern southwest Arizona, or just southern Arizona, probably be more accurate. Right? Yeah. Um, a beautiful bird, but, but off limits to hunters. There's just not enough of them. But we have gambles quail, which are extremely abundant throughout uh, our desert ecosystems. In a good year. In a good year, yeah. yeah. Um, when I first moved out here, you know, I, I've always been a, as well as a hunter and angler, but a birder as well. And that was a, a check I had not put on my, my life list of birds. And when I came out here, I was at a Starbucks on the patio and they had a covey of gamble quail uh, come right by the patio. And I couldn't believe it. I'd only been here days, you know, but it just blew me away. And it was pretty exciting for 
somebody that was exciting to be excited to be in the desert and enjoy wildlife like that. But well, and they're definitely the ones that you see in the most urban areas. Mm-hmm. You know, they're very yep. common in urban areas. Yeah, yeah, uh, subdivisions, golf courses, they they do extremely well. Mm-hmm. Um, then we have uh, scale quail. Um, I've uh, I've been fortunate to hunt those the last four or five years now, and in uh, Sulphur Springs Valley is an area that, that I frequent for them, but uh, but they occur throughout uh, southern Arizona. I'd say south southeast Arizona primarily. Would that be accurate? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're fun. Where... They're runners, though, just like gambles quail. They can be difficult to hunt with a dog, especially a young pup like mine, because they, they tend to run and, and not hold too well. But sometimes when you break that covey up, um, they'll hold surprisingly well. But but other times they don't. They're just kind of tough to figure out. And sometimes, at least with my dog, I feel like it's easier to hunt them without just uh, just putting in the miles and kicking them up. But of course, it's a lot more fun with the dog. But that would bring us to what, you know, I mean, I guess gambles quail or, or what I would call a quintessential quail species of Arizona. But Mern's quail is kind of, in my opinion, the, the rock star, the quail that brings hunters from from all across the country. Um, yeah, you're right. And they are fantastic to hunt with a dog. Um, they hold nice and tight. Uh, they flush. You almost got to step on them to flush them. And when they go up, it can it can it can be heart stopping. But a lot of fun, and they're beautiful birds. Uh, also referred to as Montezuma quail in the birding community, uh, Mern's quail in the hunting community. I don't know why that division is there, but it but it is. Um, but just a fantastic, uh, <laughs> a gaudy, gaudy bird. Uh, they're, they're they're just beautiful, and they live in, in my opinion, some of the the prettiest country uh, we have in Arizona. Those rolling borderland hills and grasses. And yeah, the oak savannas and the, mm-hmm. certainly yep. the prettiest parts. So yeah, we have uh what quail hunters come from all over all over the country uh to hunt those birds. We do. We have the three three that are commonly hunted that you mentioned and then, you know, if you're lucky, there are a few places in the state where California quail have been introduced. But they're really they've been mostly introduced on private lands and although they're in our hunt regs Mm-hmm. That you'd be lucky, I think, to to catch one and you know somewhere you could hunt it, but they are out there. Gotcha. Thank you for bringing that one up. I completely forgot about it. Um, yeah, over there along the Colorado River, uh, and that's close to another obscure species we have here that I have personally found impossible to find, and that's the ringneck pheasant. What what's the story behind those? I, I hear they're coming over from Mexico. Is that is that most a, of the time? Yeah, I think historically we worked hard. Um, or my understanding is game and fish introduced pheasants back, you know, a, a number of decades ago and uh, primarily in that Yuma area along the Colorado River. And they did really well until um, food safety practices required clean farming. And clean farming uh, basically took all of their hiding habitat away down in the Yuma area. There's a few places that they still are, but for the most part, those populations are very low. And uh, the birds that are there now, yeah, rumor is that they fly over from Mexico. Um, on the Mexican side of the border, they they hunt and probably stock, you know, pheasants on that side for paid hunts. And then um, th- those birds flush over the wall and come down into the ag fields that are close to the, the border there in Yuma. So are air... Are any of those birds in Mexico wild birds? Or are they all, all are they all planted? I well, uh, wild in the terms of like escapees over time. Okay, but, but are they not reproducing? Uh, they may be. Okay. Yeah, I they hear. may be. They're all introduced, so. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, 
All right. Well, yeah, it's, I, I, I've taken a little time to try to chase them every every September when I go to Yuma for for a dove hunt and slash dove cook off. But um, ever been successful? No, no, I haven't found <laughs> one. Uh, in fact, this year I went down, um, you know, with good intel from from people that have been successful with them before. But there was nothing but but dry dirt fields. I mean, there was no oh. cover anywhere. Um, See, so. I went down last year with good intel and and with uh, the small game biologist with John O'Dell. And he and I and another uh, hunter were all in, well, actually two more hunters were in a cotton field right down along the border wall. And uh, John and I had seen pheasants the night before the season opened out there. So we were super excited that we were seeing three or four or five pheasants down there. And oh, okay, there's going to be pheasants. And we got in the next morning when the season opened on September 1st and Three of us with a couple of dogs, four of us actually with the dogs, working through a very muddy um, cotton field that had just been recently irrigated. Uh, traipsing through the cotton, we spooked up a rooster. And I mean, that thing looked like a dragon flying low <laughs> over the cotton. It was so beautiful. But oh. he was he was smart enough or lucky enough that he came up right between the three of us. And so none of us had a shot where one of us wasn't standing behind the shot. Mm -hmm. So we didn't get to shoot it, shoot at it. But it was so fun to see that. Wow, I bet it was. You've certainly gotten closer than me anyway. But maybe next year. Maybe next year there'll be yep. some more more fields put in and there'll be some pheasants running around. I certainly hope so. So uh, leading to that, let's see. You know, I, I guess doves are more considered a, you know, well, how would I say that? Uh, a migratory game bird. Mm -hmm. um, but small game in my book. Yep, and also, yeah. I like to tell folks that, you know, next to maybe Argentina, we have the absolute best dove hunting in the world. I think I agree. Um, you know, I, I think I, I tried to put it in the order of Argentina, Yuma, then the Phoenix Valley. I don't know if that's accurate, but that's been my experience. Yeah. I mean, there, you know, here in Arizona, the, our top hunted species is deer or, mm -hmm. you know, suite of species is deer, but close on their heels. And John and I always make the joke, like we're going to catch and surpass deer here very quickly with dove because next to deer dove is our second highest hunted species in yeah. Arizona. So that day is coming. Yeah. But yeah, we have by far like Yuma boasts, you know, the, the best hunting dove hunting in the world and, and the best dove hunting in America, in North America, certainly I think is a fair statement. I think so. Um, I've certainly had a blast. I remember, trying to chase them as a kid uh back in missouri and, and you know we had birds but it was nothing like this yeah. um you know I, i've got spots around the phoenix valley you know well i should say outside of the phoenix valley but not far um that i'm, I'm extremely successful you know I, I limit out most mornings i'm hunting on, on good days um yeah. and of course they're, they're delicious to eat too and, and you know we hold the between at this point i think arizona game and fish used to run it um now arizona backcountry hunters and anglers is hosting it but that's the uh, the yuma dove cook-off mm -hmm. um I, I should say world-renowned yuma dove cook-off people really enjoy it and you know you might have the stats i don't of how many years that's been going on but it's it's, it's been around a while hasn't it it's been around at least four or five years i want to say yeah and, and you mentioned john a, a mutual friend of ours and small game biologist here at arizona game and fish department i think he can he can boast that he's won that several times at this point. Yep, he's been the defending champ at least a few times. He didn't he didn't take the title this didn't year, but he was year, defending no. it from yeah. last year. So yeah, well, you can't. Win or no, all. two years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe even three because so, somebody won it two years ago. I, I have a blast with them. 
Uh, and it's, it's funny. My wife, she struggles with it because, you know, what we'll cook up between, between her and the kids and I, you know, we'll eat 20 doves and in a sitting. Um, and it bothers her that we've had to kill 20, 20 different animals to make a meal. Right. When she's, she's very supportive of me going out and bringing an elk home because we can eat on one animal for, for six months right. or so, but that well, doesn't get in my way by any stretch. But, but. but that goes back to, you know, small game being a fun, I mean, that's the gateway, like small mm-hmm. game is, you know, you, if you look at dove, it's probably the most expensive game meat out there. Cause it's, ends up being about, you know, $14 a, an ounce <laughs> by the time it's time and travel and gunshot and whatever else. And so you don't, you don't hunt doves for the meat necessarily. You hunt doves for the experience and, and the meat is an awesome thing that you can bring home and experiment with. And, you know, but the, the learning experience, the exposure for kids, the exposure for new hunters, the time with family and friends. I mean, that's, really why I hunt dove. Yes, I hunt elk for meat, Mm -hmm. but I hunt dove because all those experiences that lead into that. And I think that's true of a lot of small game versus big game. You know, you're, you're going to hunt one deer or one javelina or one elk, Mm -hmm. but you're going to hunt five squirrels a day and, you know, 15 quail a day and 15 doves a day and, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, but that's all part of the experience. Right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned the meat. Um, they it's especially like after a long summer, which I typically spend fly fishing, which usually doesn't end up in a lot of fish coming home. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll, I'll keep a few stockers every year, but it's always exciting for me. Come September first is kind of like the gateway to hunting season, the gateway to the fall in a sense. And you know, Labor Day is is right there near the start of dove season, and of course that always means dove poppers on the grill, um, which is you know a cliche way to prepare doves, but you know they're they're, they're poppers, they're delicious. Yeah. Um, but then after that, I typically try to get into to you know more unique ways of cooking them, or or just grilling them, plucking them, and grilling them whole. But you know, making sure to keep that meat medium rare because that makes all the difference uh, in the world as far as flavor goes. But uh, yeah, there's. The Yuma Dove Cook-Off is a great example of all the diverse ways that you can prepare these. Um, okay. You know, there's there's always a, a, an array of uh, unique and interesting dishes, and people get pretty creative with them. Yeah, I will say one of my favorites is actually one of John's dishes. With the He did that kind of honey, teriyaki, almost marinade-slash-dip coating on doves. And, man, there's, you could have, like, licked the plate on that one. Yeah, yeah, he's got a... He's got a a niche in that like Asian cuisine. Yeah. He really he knows what he's doing there. Yeah. Well, so I guess keeping with the bird theme, let's, let's move on down the list of, of different opportunities here. Um, another one that, uh, is my white whale, um, the chucker, um, AKA <laughs> the devil bird. Yeah. Um, they occur again, a, another ex- exotic species, um, but, but established, I should say. And they, uh, they occur in extreme northwest Arizona, um, strip country, big, open, steep, uh, rugged canyon country. So, you know, and people tell me that in some areas they're in high abundance. That's not been my experience because I've not seen a single one. Um, I've only been hunting them the last two years, though. 
and only a couple trips in there. But uh, boy, those trips we put in the miles, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and myself, the dog, everybody comes back with sore feet and, and no bird sightings. Well, and the insult to injury usually is if you see a checker, it's headed over the ridge and laughing at you as it goes. So. <laughs> That's what I hear. I worry about my, my inexperienced pup and with his exuberance, maybe chasing one off one of those ridges. Yeah. But I, I keep tight tabs on him in that country, though. So I don't have a heck of a lot to say about Chugger because I have zero experience with them other than than a lot of hiking in in rough country. But uh, I I hear they're out there. That's remote, big country. You know, I I hear there's sheep waters and springs in in remote places that um, on good years when things are wet, I hear they can be quite abundant. Uh, of course, you know, we're, we're in the midst of a, of a horrendous drought in the southwest, and uh, I've had no luck with them. I'm sure they're still out there, but but I'm yet to find them. But I'm going to keep trying. I'll be back next year. That's good. Yeah, I think the only thing I can add is just a second. You're, you know, they take lots of effort, and they're not going to be an easy bird. But, man, they taste good when you do get them. No, so. I wouldn't know, but <laughs> maybe someday. I, I've only had Utah chucker, right. <laughs> to clarify that. Well, I want an Arizona chucker. But yes, um, I'm, I'm going to stick with it until I find them. Uh, so up in that country um, is one of the, uh, uh, not the same country, but a little bit farther east um you've got the kaibab national forest well i guess that's all the kaibab up there but uh with the higher the higher piney woods up there the ponderosa forest um and you get a little higher in those and you get into spruce and fir and that's where you find our dusky grouse um not only do they occur up there but also in the san francisco peaks way up high but hard to access and then some over in the white mountains too although i think the wall of fire uh, did a number on that population but uh, I've, I've been successful with those a couple times up there uh, in the Kaibab. And I'll tell you, there's it's, it's hard to find a habitat in September prettier than those aspens up there. It's just an absolutely beautiful place to go hunt and hike around and look for those birds. Yeah. Well, I've not hunted them on the Kaibab, but I have seen them out in the White Mountains quite a bit. And, uh, uh, you know, the I was out there last fall a year ago backpacking through an area and I'd had a friend who hunts asked me if I was taking my shotgun cause grouse season was open. And I said, Oh, I'm not going to take it cause I'm backpacking. And of course, what do I do? Like the second morning I'm out there, see four grouse sitting right next to me in the morning and <laughs> thought I could throw rocks at these things. But, um, so they are out there and, uh, also very tasty birds, but uh, do require a lot of effort. A lot of times, you know, they, they like to fly downhill <laughs> in most cases, and so the times I've seen them uh, is typically up higher, and then they take off when they do take off. They mm-hmm. take off and head downhill and down slope. And Yeah, I've, I've had similar experiences backpacking, you know, through other states in the Rockies um, where, yeah, when you run into them like that, they're just you know, tooling along slowly, minding their own mm-hmm. business, and you could walk up and almost, you know, give one a boot if you wanted to. Um, yeah, it made me wish for a handgun shooting shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that that was not my experience this year. I went out on the last day of grouse season, again, up on the Kaibab, and, man, they flushed wild, like, you know, 50 yards out in front of me. Like, okay. not, not even close enough for a shot. But it was the last day of the season, and, you know, it makes sense. The birds are going to be a little bit more wary at that bit. point. Yep, yeah. absolutely. Beautiful birds, though, and they live in absolutely stunning country. So a great opportunity uh, that we have here in Arizona. You know, most people out east think of Arizona as a giant desert and uh, boy, that couldn't be farther from the truth. We do have a lot of desert and it's beautiful desert, but uh, you know, we have a lot of mountain country too. 
You do have to hunt them a little earlier in the season, though, if you want to get them like in the easier country, because, you know, as the season goes on, they go up into the spruce and fir for the winter. And if you get snow and other things and it gets a little more challenging to maneuver through those areas. But no I had no idea that they moved yeah. around like that. Yeah, they'll go up in elevation as the winter goes. Really? That's that's why they, you know, their former name before they were split, they were called spruce grouse, or not spruce grouse, sorry, but blue grouse. Mm -hmm. And blue grouse and spruce grouse and others eat, tend to eat those conifer buds and mm -hmm. leaves or, you know, whatever you want to call the, <laughs> the little fur blades, um, the needles. They eat those all winter long. And so uh, if you get them in, earlier in the season, they taste better because they're not eating spruce and fur, but they also are a little, they're in lower country. I'll be. I had no idea. Yeah, I always just head as high as I can get. You know, I, I get into grouse country and I just get as high as I can get. And that's why I start yep. hunting. Find but some yeah. little clearings. and mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, let's let's go ahead and round out the birds. Um, and, you know, I don't know, I feel funny calling this one small game, but but I guess it is. And that's the Sandhill Crane. And I think you and I both had opportunities to hunt them this year. Yeah. Um, I think first hunts for both of us as well. Yeah. And um, let's see, what order do we want to go in? You want to talk about yours first? Uh, sure. Yeah. So um, <laughs> first time, um, didn't go out there with anybody who knew something more than I did, although I had lots of good advice from folks who've hunted them before. And I borrowed some decoys from a good friend of mine that's retired game and fish and has hunted them successfully. And so, you know, the instructions were set out the decoys before dawn in places that you saw them the night before or the day before where they were feeding. So they'll most likely come back to those same fields and, and set out the decoys like you see them naturally, you know, don't cluster them up and make them look like sandhills that you see out in the fields feeding. And so I traipsed out there the first couple of mornings I watched, uh, the day before I went out there was really, 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 really windy. So the birds were all down on whitewater draw primarily and hadn't been flying a lot. So I didn't have a good way to pattern where they were going the morning before to feed. So I went back to an area that I had seen uh, them on last, which would have been like about a week ago. And I thought, well, maybe they'll at least fly over or they'll come back to these fields. And, you know, I was looking at ag fields that had corn that was left on the ground or alfalfa fields in any stage of growth. It seems like the birds weren't very preferential to one stage of growth in the alfalfa or another. And, uh, First morning, didn't see, like, things flew over, but they flew over high. They didn't even look at the decoys. Um, watched where they flew that morning, went to that field the next morning, uh, had nothing come in. <laughs> but they landed. They kept jumping southeast of me by about three or four fields. And so the, the third morning, the sandhill crane hunts are only three days if it's the general hunt or, the you know, the shotgun hunt. And so... Um, the third morning, I thought, okay, these birds are coming in, they're coming in, they're coming in, I'm going to be there. And I didn't actually set out the decoys. I just thought I'm going to, I want to be a little more mobile. And uh, so I went out to this, almost the center of a big pivot on a, on an ag field, a, a alfalfa field, and, and got there before first light and hugged up next to a pivot wheel and made myself as comfortable as possible in 30 degree weather. And and the birds started to fly over and they got excited because it's always fun to hear the sandhill cranes and to see them. They're such beautiful, very charismatic birds. 
And uh, as they flew closer, they were starting to land on the field and circle around. And I just got super excited because I was finally on the same field with the birds <laughs> after three days of trying to get there. And uh, they circled closer and they landed and they circled closer and they landed, but they were landing out at the edge of the field and I was towards the center of the field. So I was still 200 yards yeah. away, you know, and out of range. And I was thinking, okay, how can I crawl across here when the, the blades of alfalfa are only about <laughs> an inch and a half tall? And there's just no good way to be camoed, you know, because they're very sensitive to movement. And and so I just thought, well, they'll circle. Like they kept coming overhead and they would circle ever closer as they came overhead. And then they would land out in the field. And they thought, I just need a few more flights to come over the field. And they'll be coming right over me and they'll be in within range and they'll be landing right within range. And and uh, as I did that, uh, you know, in the last, I was getting really excited because I'm like, it's just going to take one or f two more groups because apparently sandhills are like Judas birds, like some land on the field then everybody else comes to that field. And so uh, just, you know, I'd had the Judas birds come in and, <laughs> and, uh, and right as the, the birds were all coming in and getting close enough that I could take a shot, I had somebody in a truck come storming up and oh, try no. to do some road hunting and oh, jump out of the no. truck and they flush the birds all off and I didn't ever get another chance. So yeah, that was really disappointing, but it was still super cool to like, like I was so excited to be on the same field and to be like, Oh, I'm finally successful at least in that endeavor, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, to be there with them and to hear them and to be that close and to have them not know I was there or not care if I was there, if they did know I was there. So I'll hope for next year and, yeah. you know, or a future year and see if I can get on the same field and, you know, some of it's luck and some of it's work. So right. this time the luck wasn't with me, but the work was. Yeah. All these species we're talking about also, you know, most of these are, you have a hunting license, you're good to go. I mean, some of them like dove require a migratory bird stamp, right. um, but sandhill crane, they're, they're a draw species. So you got to put your, throw your name into the hat and draw those tags. It took me a couple of years to get mine, but um, and I only saw a little bit more success than you. But that was not because of nothing I did or any knowledge I had. I just happened to get lucky and be with some guys that, that knew what they were doing. But it was still a really tough hunt. You know, we ended up taking home two birds, um, another gentleman in our group and myself. But boy, nice. it was exciting. We hunted. We hunted two days. Um, first day. We had decoys out. Um, they knew how to call. I can't roll my R's, so I don't know if I'll ever be able to use a call. <laughs> but um, I'm going to try to learn. Lean over the back of your bed. and ah. <laughs> There you go. Um, that first morning, uh, first group of birds, we, we start calling, and they come right into the decoys. Nice. And, uh, you know, our, our, our designated um, fellow that calls out the shots, you know, told everybody to jump up and take them. And boy, you would have thought birds just would have rained from the sky and it didn't happen. I guess wow. it was first morning. We were all excited, but some really poor shooting, including myself. But one, one gentleman did bag one. Then uh, we hunted the entire rest of that day without a shot. Um, I think we were in a bad spot. We were under some power lines oh, yeah. um, on the edge of a field and just could not get those birds to commit. Um, you know, maybe they'd been pressured. Maybe we were just doing doing something we shouldn't have been doing. But um and I will say that our blind wasn't that great in the beginning either. It got better because we kept building on it as time went on. But finally, the next morning, most of the morning went by. Nothing happened. You know, I'm 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 coming to terms with the fact that I'm going to go home empty-handed. Right. And got a group of birds coming through. Everybody's calling. 
everyone but me. There's one, two, three, four other fellows in the blind and myself. I'm on the far end. They're calling to some birds, watching them back behind us. I'm facing forward, and as they're watching those birds, two birds come right in onto the ground. Uh, oh, nice. <laughs> and I'm like looking at those guys. And like, I like, can get two shots. Like, right Sorry, here. guys, I'm going to take them. <laughs> I yeah. just jump up, and uh, we ended up taking, oh, so I guess that would have been three birds. Yeah, because we took both of those birds. Um, so I took one. Another gentleman took one. So I, I couldn't have been more happy. Um, there's nothing I enjoy more than, than chasing new species and and you know, it's for me. It's not even the hunting. Um, I, I certainly enjoy hunting. I certainly enjoy eating these animals. But I'll tell you, um, the first time I ever heard sandhill cranes and saw them, I was on a field herping and birding trip in South Texas, and that was back before children and marriage. When I would just go off on these, you know, long road trips, mm-hmm. uh, these trips, you know, at the drop of a hat, and it was one of those trips that I had left the evening before, drove the entire night. Um, and eventually, you know, middle of the night, mid-morning, uh, I went to sleep in a wet field in South Texas, woke up a few hours later to the sound of those soundhill cranes coming over my head. And, and you know, that's a memory I will hold on to forever. You know, you just don't forget stuff like that. They're, mm-hmm. they're a magnificent bird. Um, and well, I'll say... And they're one of the, like, they're really one of the hunting success stories. Like, you know, they... They are so numerous now because of the managed hunting and the the demand there, I would say, in many ways. Like, you know, people often wonder why we hunt such a charismatic species. But if we didn't hunt them, they're really, really disastrous on their breeding grounds up north. And so um, it's important to manage for them. But with that management comes the success of their species that, that you know, we... We had over 47,000 cranes down in the Sulphur Valley last winter, and that was a record high. And wow. I don't know what it looks like this year, but it was rather insulting to me that, you know, there are that many birds in the <laughs> air and I can't get one. But, uh, yeah, they're they're just they're one of the best success stories as mm-hmm. far as up, not upland game, but waterfowl and, and, you know, cranes go for management and for hunting. That, yeah, that yeah. really has brought their numbers up. Well, I would say not to feel bad for, for as many birds as there are out there. There's twice as many eyes. Yes, exactly. But yeah, most folks I've talked to, you know, that aren't in the hunting community, um, they have no idea that people even hunt these things. Right. Um, but uh, can I tell you what I did with the meat? Yes. All right. So I had one bird um, and, you know, it, it's it's a special animal. It's one that I've never harvested before. So I stretched it pretty dang far. Um, let's see. First, we had Thanksgiving. So I took one breast. Um, and it was just uh, my wife and I, our kids and two friends. And I, uh, I sauteed that in a, in a super hot cast iron with a whole stick of butter. And I just kept basting it with that and butter making as, me it, hungry. as it cooked, <laughs> um, cooked to about 130, maybe 125. Then I pulled it and let it set, figuring it, it raised 130 and uh, sliced that up, let everybody have a few pieces. And it was yes. just absolutely delicious. And, you know, live the, up to its name. Yeah. Ribeye of the sky. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, it does. It did. If you didn't know better, you'd think you're eating a piece of steak, a really nice piece of steak. Uh-huh. So then after that Thanksgiving, we had a Friendsgiving a couple, couple nights later and I took those legs, um, and I rubbed them down with like a, oh, um, I'm at a loss for words here. Bear with me. Uh, carnitas rub. So cumin, um, uh, Mexican oregano. I forget what else I threw in there, but rubbed them down with those. Then I braised those in orange juice and it quite wow. some time, probably about 12 hours. But eventually got to the point where that meat was just falling off the bones. And when I went to 
to pull all that meat from the bones, I have never seen so many tendons in my life. They have <laughs> tendony legs, but fortunately they're super easy to remove. I mean, it was not a That's pain good. in the butt at all, but I shredded that all up, uh, and stuffed it into mini tacos for, for the, again, the Friendsgiving. Oh, then, I bet that was good. Oh, it was really good. Yeah. Um, then I ate that next breast selfishly all by myself, same way as I did <laughs> the last one. Um, then I, I shared with my kids uh, the gizzard, the heart, the liver. Uh, you know, we fried up for breakfast one morning with eggs. Um, okay. And then I took that carcass because I had that big old long neck. Uh-huh. And that's pretty meaty as well. And really? Yeah, okay. Yeah I've, I, not, yeah. I've not seen them skinned out or. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, you know, I mean, it's, how would you describe the size of a sandhill crane? Um, I mean, maybe it's four feet a, tall a and goose. <laughs> yeah, long yeah, and a, lanky, a long, lanky goose. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I took that carcass and I made a big old batch of stock, uh, which my wife made a French onion soup out of last night. So mm. I, I really, I, I took that burden and stretched nice. it a long way. Yeah. But it, was, it was great. Okay. Uh, so let's move on. Let's get away from the birds. Did we cover all the birds? Are you thinking I think of anything? So. I, I would just add, um, mm-hmm. this is the late dove season right now mm-hmm. and it seems like almost any water tank in Arizona right now has got lots and lots of doves so yeah I haven't been out for the late season yet it's, I've been out once and there were definitely a lot of doves coming into the tank that I was uh shooting over but or shooting at but um yeah it's if you know I don't know when you're airing this but if it's in the late season still there's there's a lot of opportunity out there even though our white wings are gone the morning mm-hmm are still here in force yeah no i've uh in the past um I, i've enjoyed the late season i, I enjoy the excitement of the first season because it's mm-hmm. again it's that first first, first season of the, of the year fall, yeah. yeah but the second season most of the folks are gone you can have those fields to yourself and there's just as many birds yeah yeah all right let's uh let's talk about rabbits um and you know Cottontail rabbits are, are considered a game species here. We have a couple different subspecies, desert cottontail, mountain cottontail, and maybe a couple others. I, I don't Eastern. know. Eastern. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we also have jackrabbits. And to to to, <laughs> to my my pain and, and disagreement, they're not considered a game species. I, I think they're fantastic, and I would, I would love that. But. They do that only because, um, like we've talked before, you know, game, game meat, you can't leave game meat in the mm-hmm. field. That's wanton waste. And so... Um, lots of trappers actually use jackrabbit meat to trap. And so to allow that to be legal, they are a hunted non-game species as opposed to a designated game species where that's, you wouldn't be able to use the game meat. In that's that very interesting. Way. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, I, I find them delicious. Uh, uh, yeah, I agree. <laughs> especially, you know, we've got um, black-tailed jackrabbits here in the valley. Do we have white-tailed jackrabbits anywhere north? No. no. Um, and then, of course, down uh, in southern Arizona, we have the antelope jackrabbit, which I don't. I've been corrected before by calling it the la- largest lagomorph, but um, what we will call it the longest. I think some of the snowshoe hares can be a little heavier, but they are massive, massive rabbits. Yeah, um, when I th- when most people think about rabbits and even jackrabbits, you know, they underestimate. But our antelope jacks, you can those big guys, you can easily get ten or twelve pounds of meat off of. Yeah. So that's nothing to ignore. <laughs> and that is that is ten or twelve pounds of delicious meat. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I uh, let's see, uh, the Arizona Wildlife Federation host an event down on the Capitol lawn in Phoenix every year called Camo at the Capitol. And it's an opportunity for hunters and anglers to get together and talk to their legislators. 
And what we will do is we'll have different organization affiliate groups of ours, Elk Society and Predator Colors and, and all these groups will come together. They will uh, cook a meal and we'll feed the legislators, uh, legislatures uh, lunch in a sense. And let's see, the first year I did it, I did antelope jackrabbit and I did it comfort food style. I, I, you know, I basically, you know, braised and that's, you know, let's see, how do you put this? With jackrabbits, they are, are lanky, lean critters. Um, mm -hmm. Backstraps can be perfectly tender um, and, and delicious, just done on a, on a griddle or cast iron or grill. But the legs, typically you need a braise until that meat gets, it gets tender and falls off the bone. But I did it in that way, and I served it atop mashed potatoes with a side of peas, um, just like, you know, familiar Sounds comfort tasty, food yeah. style. Yeah, Southern and, comfort food. <laughs> mm -hmm, yeah, and it turned out delicious. But uh, it, was, it was shocking. Most of the folks that weren't used to eating wild game were perfectly great with it. They thought it was delicious. I mean, everybody thought it was good. But it was the other hunters that struggled with it. They were the ones that were like, no, you don't eat jackrabbit. And it's like, no, you do. You should try it because it's delicious. Yeah. But um, I definitely, I think I converted a few of them by the end of it. So Yeah, I've, I've maintained um, antelope jack is actually the first species I harvested here in Arizona. And uh, man, when I tasted that, I, I was hooked. Uh, right? Antelope yeah. jack is actually one of my favorite not game meats, but game meats, yeah. <laughs> wild meats. No, I, I completely so. agree. And, and I feel sorry for anyone that thinks any different. I mean, yeah, I guess more for us because um, uh, yeah. they're amazing. Well, and there's a lot of stigma about jackrabbits and cottontails, you know, when to, when you can hunt them, mm -hmm. when you can shoot them, when they, when you can eat them and, you know, you can eat them year round. A lot of people, a lot of hunters typically uh, get squeamish with, harvesting them in the summertime because of the bot fly larvae. Mm -hmm. But you know, those little squiggly wormy looking things under the skin stay under the skin and they don't affect the meat. And yeah, so the meat yeah. is, is still good. Uh, to, to be fair, I don't know if I would call them little squirmly things. Yeah, they're, 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 they can be pretty beefy. Massive, horrible yeah, they things. can be pretty beefy. Uh, um, but you know, I, I've, I've gotten those in, in the nasal cavity of deer as well, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're, they're not a parasite that's in the meat. They're, they're under the surface of the skin. It's just a fly larva and they are horrendous looking, yeah. no question about it, but they, they don't affect the meat at all. Um, and yeah, well, I've, uh, I've had that, that discussion with several hunters several times and I'm sure I will for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, the whole, you can't eat rabbits and are you, you, you only eat rabbits and months at end and R. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's rubbish, uh, un but unfortunately, it's very widespread rubbish. Well, and I um, think you know everybody, every other critter eats a rabbit. Like all of our predators mm -hmm. eat rabbits, and our raptors are you know predatory birds. Hawks and eagles eat rabbits, and so. They can't be all that bad because they're no. not eating them only in the months with R. Yep. No, if, if you're worried about parasites, just cook your meat. Yeah. That's all you got to do is cook your meat. Yeah. Um, I will say um, just as a side note, mm -hmm. um, you know, you might, if you're a hunter here in Arizona and you've been out a few years, we've heard comments here and there that, you know, this year and last year, cottontails were lower numbers. Um, jackrabbits were lower numbers. Some of that has a lot to do with the drought, but a lot of that, especially if you're in Southern Arizona, had to do with a, a virus that came through Southern Arizona last spring in, in March and April of 2020. And, and thankfully that seems to have run its most uh, horrendous course. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, in some places mortality or, you know, death rates in the rabbit population were pretty high, like 70 and 80%. 
but in other pockets they weren't. And so thankfully, you know, the saying reproducing like rabbits is, is true. Uh, rabbits just need a good year or two and they rebound in very high numbers. And so don't avoid them in the next, you know, few years to, to mm-hmm. hunt because they should be coming back up. Good. Yeah. You're reading my mind. I was going to bring that up almost immediately after you, after you started. Um, you know, I don't know if it's confirmation bias and I, I'm, I'm, just uh, seeing what what I have in my own mind, but but I'd noticed that in a, in a place I archery hunt for mule deer in the past years, <clears throat> rabbits had, had been abundant, um, and this year you know they were scarce to say the right. least. Um, and yeah, I, I was aware of that virus passed through, and I was going to ask if there's been any evidence of, of the populations rebounding. I didn't hunt rabbits at all last year. Normally, I would like to take a trip down south every year chasing those big antelope jacks, but this year I passed on it just because because I heard a that there was some mortality down there. Yeah. And I, I did the same. Um, I, I have not been down there to look recently, but I hope to get down there in the, in the new year and, uh, see how the populations are doing. But, you know, last fall, last October, a year ago, you know, those, those habitats in Southern Arizona, some of them look like a moonscape mm-hmm. because it was so dry. And so, my own personal feeling, I thought I'm going to skip that just because anybody who did survive the virus yeah. is now struggling to survive the habitat. And so, you know, because I enjoy hunting them and I love eating them, uh, I wanted to have them persist in those areas. And so I skipped last year and, you know, hopefully I won't have to skip all this year, but yeah, but it will be um, interesting to see how quickly they rebound because, you know, cottontails tend to rebound pretty quickly. Jackrabbits, maybe not quite as quick but they will still reproduce. And, and in a good year, we just need one good winter or one good, you know, we had good monsoon rains. And so hopefully they did, they did some help and, you know, those rabbits can reproduce year round if the conditions are good. So, yeah. Um, I guess it's worth pointing out that, you know, a jackrabbit is technically a hare. Um, and is that a different family than, it is a different genus, different same, genus family, same family, but, so. but different genus. Yeah. And one of those main differences is when a cottontail uh, has pups, I believe young rabbits are called, um, they're hairless, they're defenseless, their eyes are not open. Uh, when a jackrabbit uh, burrs offspring, they are fully haired, eyes open, ready to take ready on the to world. Ready to go in an hour, yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, as I believe it, is there's just one or two pups for a jackrabbit where a cottontail might have a nest of several. Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. Uh, amazing animals, though. I've got one photograph of my little boy who's nine, just as the, uh, the other day turned nine. But So this would have been, oh, I don't know, he'd probably been six. And we were down there hunting them, and I've got a, a picture of him holding one up, and it's, it's longer than he is, mm-hmm. so he's holding it up above his head. So. Well, that I have a I have a couple of photos of my hunting buddy when she first started hunting a few years ago. Um, I had met her on the women's javelina mm-hmm. hunt down in southern Arizona with the ham hunt, but uh, and she hadn't been able to harvest anything that time, and so later that year I said, "Come out and let's try jackrabbit hunting." And so her first game. Her first wild animal was also a jackrabbit, and she's almost as tall as I am. I'm five nine and something, and she's almost as tall. And you know, her holding that rabbit, even without the distorted like holding it way yeah. out front, um, holding that rabbit, it was probably five plus feet tall. You uh-huh. know, head to like ears to to toes. They're huge. So I mean, they're, they're huge. Very large. Yeah. I mean, anyone I think going down there and seeing those rabbits for the first time is going to be shocked. Oh yeah. Yeah, they're they're yeah. amazing, and they're not easy to hunt either. 
Um, you know, they're, they're pretty wired and then they have those giant ears for a reason. Right. Um, you know, it, I think it might depend on where you are. Cause I've been in places that, uh, clearly they were, they had not been hunted and they were pretty, pretty, they pretty didn't, easy they didn't to mind approach. me being yeah. there. And that was a nice change of pace because the other places I'd hunted them was, I think kind of where everybody else hunts them. And yeah. I guess I won't get too specific on location. So I'll make folks mad here, but, um, they're tough there, you know, yeah. um, uh, they, they see it and hear you from a long way away and they, they have the ability to stay out of range. And when they run, they're not like a cottontail who will run, you know, 30 yards, stop and look back at you. Oh, These no. guys run and they just run for miles. They run for Yeah. And, and, you know, one thing I learned that's kind of fun when you do see those guys run is, you know, if you, if you're lucky enough to catch one that's sitting under a bush or a shrub somewhere resting and the ears are up and whatever, then, you know, if you see them, as soon as the rabbit catches wind of you, you'll see them kind of hop out and then they may run a few steps and, and look. And if they spook, then what you'll start to see, and it's always fun to see, even though it's frustrating, is that they run. And and if they hop vertical instead of horizontal, they right. start hopping like those big antelope jacks will actually hop vertical to look at what's out in front of them and look at what's around. And then once they hop, they do those vertical hops, you know, you're, <laughs> you're, you're pretty, you're lost. Like you're never going to catch that rabbit. Cause then they just take off and right. they, yeah, the you know, they go for all they're worth. I could not figure that vertical hop out. I was like, what are they doing? No, nope, that's but, just to look and see like I'm clear and you're back there and I'm going that yeah. way. And wow. so. All right. Well, I saved my favorite for last. And that is the majestic tree squirrel. Um, <laughs> I, I love squirrels. They're my favorite small game to eat. They're my favorite small game to hunt. And, you know, when I was just a little boy with a pellet gun, you know, back in the Missouri Ozarks, that, you know, they're what I cut my teeth on. My, my very first hunt was for squirrels. And, uh, yeah, I've loved them ever since. Um, I still get as excited today going after them as I did way back then. Um, I attribute them to teaching me how to shoot. Um, you know, they, they, that head is not a big target. Right. And, and, you know, uh, my, my preferred method of hunting them is with 22 rifle and, and, you know, shooting them in the head, um, doesn't make for the nicest photos necessarily afterwards, but it gives you the cleanest meat. Um, and it, it gives you an, an immediately killed squirrel, uh, which both, both parts are important to me, but, yeah, they, they teach you how to breathe, how to how to slow down when you're excited mm -hmm. and how to squeeze that trigger. Um, and then when you do those things right, that squirrel drops out of the tree. But uh, but yeah, so so squirrel hunting and, and also they're sharp, you know, they have good eyesight, they have good hearing. Um, they have an elevated perch, which is spot you from. Right. Um, but the odds are in their favor. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, yeah, they, they've I can they've made me a better big game hunter. Um, mm -hmm. I absolutely love them. Yeah, my my mentor when I came into hunting because I you know I didn't grow up hunting, so I don't have the same experience you do back east. I wish I did. Every time I go back to home for Christmas or otherwise, I think I'm going to take my 22 and I'm going to buy a small li game license. You know, even if it's a three day license, and go hunt squirrels because there's eastern gray squirrels and fox squirrels and whatever else back there. And but uh, you know my my mentor out here in Arizona, one of the first things he told me, I bought a a bolt action rifle for big game. And, um, after the first year that I hunted and he saw, you know, how I struggled with connecting things together, he said, go get yourself a 22. That's a bolt action and hunt squirrels. And so he took me out 
that fall with his bolt action 22 and taught me how to hunt squirrels, Abert squirrels. And, and I went and bought a 22 and, and that's, you know, if nothing else that has helped the muscle memory of loading mm -hmm. and reloading and, and the scope and, you know, cause I have a scoped 22 and, and being able to practice those same actions so that I'm more proficient on my big game, you know, rifle, but but I, like you, I love hunting squirrels. I think that's, to me, that is the most fun because I think most of the, the kick that I get out of hunting small game or big game is actually the stalk. Like I love to spot and glass, but I love the stalk and the sneaking in and mm -hmm. getting close enough to either watch with the camera like I did for years and years and take pictures or now, you know, taking my gun in and harvesting an animal. And so... Um, squirrels, like you say, have a lot of advantages from their perches. And, and, you know, I was out recently in, in the Mount Graham area, um, there you can hunt abert squirrels year round. Uh, you have to be careful that you know your species because there's mm -hmm. the endangered Mount Graham red squirrel that you cannot hunt without a huge fine. And so, um, we're trying to eradicate the abert squirrels in that mountain range, uh, to benefit the endangered red squirrel subspecies that's there. But, but I was out hunting Mount Graham reds, uh, not red squirrels. <laughs> don't, don't say that. Don't say that. No, I was not hunting those. I was hunting Abert squirrels in the areas with where they overlap the red squirrel. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of laughing to myself because I hadn't had a lot of success seeing something. And then I heard something in the trees, you know, chewing on pine cones. And they thought, oh, is that a red squirrel or is that a Abert squirrel? And and watching with binoculars and locating that animal and seeing it was an Abert squirrel and then stalking it. And it's almost like that particular squirrel played with me and teased me. And so it was a real success story when I just shot him and, and harvested him and could take him home and eat him. And, but that's, that to me is the fun of hunting those game, the small game and, and particularly the squirrels, just mm -hmm. because I do feel like they have a, an awareness of, where you are and where they are and how safe they feel or secure they feel and, yeah. and being able to get in the right position to, to harvest one of those and, and kind of outwit the squirrel. I mean, it's kind of sad that I have to compare myself to outwitting a squirrel, <laughs> but, but that's what it takes sometimes is, is thinking like the squirrel and thinking better than the squirrel mm -hmm. to, to actually harvest. Sure. Them. Wow. And I guess I should point out to be clear, in case folks listening do not have in their mind's eye what these species we're talking about look like, um, if you think they look similar hunting, you know, one species in the same mountain range as an endangered species might seem irresponsible. With that said, these are very different squirrels. Yes. Um, yeah, the Abert squirrel is probably the most abundant squirrel in Arizona. Um, they have, you know, they're typically gray in coloration. Very showy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, ear tufts, you know, big white and gray flashy tails. I sometimes wonder how that tail evolved. What was the benefit, especially in the Kaibab subspecies, which have a solid white tail? Yeah. What was the benefit of that? Some you know? kind of flagging. That, that's how I find yeah. them, you know? Yeah. So it doesn't seem advantageous, but right. I'm sure there was something in there that I'm just not seeing. But, um, and yeah, the, the mountain ground red squirrel is a subspecies of the pine squirrel, which is a small species um, and, and looks very different. And those Abert squirrel in the mountain gram range, um, as far as I'm aware, are not native. No. Um, they, they don't were, belong there. Yeah, they and were now they're competing. 70 years ago yep. or something. Mm -hmm. So not only do we have the fantastic uh, Abert squirrel, um, there's also the 
Kaibab subspecies of the Abert squirrel up north of the Grand Canyon, which, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't think that you have to be a wildlife nut like me to appreciate that animal. It is just a beautiful squirrel. Mm-hmm. Um, then as we move over to say like rim country, we get into the Arizona gray squirrel. Um, so the Aberts is, is uh, a resident of Ponderosa pine forest. When you get into the Arizona gray squirrel, we're looking at more riparian areas with oak and other mixed, mixed species of trees in there. And technically they're not a gray squirrel, like our Eastern grays back East. Right. Um, but they're a fox squirrel. And, uh, you know, when, when you get one in the hand, that becomes pretty apparent, you know, if you're familiar with squirrels, um, Moving on from there, we get down to southeast Arizona, um, and solely in the Chiricahua Mountains, we have the Mexican fox squirrel. And that is a special, special squirrel. Um, how I understand it, they are, are different in several ways from most other species. Um, they are slow reproducing, uh, from what I understand. And please correct me if I'm wrong, Larissa, uh, but one to two pups every couple of years. Yeah, they don't reproduce like the typical rodent. Mm-hmm. Um, they are, like you say, slower reproducing. And uh, the Mexican fox squirrel or the Chiricahua fox squirrel, you'll mm-hmm. also hear. Um, you know, we encourage, we don't encourage a lot of hunters to go down there and think like, I'm going to get my limit. Like you hunt, if you hunt the Chiricahua fox squirrel, you hunt as a like, I want a Chiricahua fox squirrel. <laughs> Uh, that said, they're not easy to hunt. They're very secretive. They're very good at lying very still and disappearing in the trees. And so um, it's not like you can expect to go down there and spend a day. You can get lucky and spend a day and harvest a, you know, a squirrel or two. But you're not going to be as lucky or as easy as like an Abert squirrel to go out and think, here's a good habitat and you'll find an Abert squirrel. Um, so we just... You know, we don't talk a lot about the Chiricahua fox squirrel just because they are slower numbers, like slower reproducing, lower Mm -hmm. numbers. Um, And they had a lot of the Chiricahua habitat was destroyed in a couple of fires back in the early 2010s. And so um, there's some concern over, you know, how much that impacted the squirrel. We don't know. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'd just say, you know, if you're going to hunt Chiricahua fox squirrels, then you go down there and you think you you're happy with one yeah, yeah. <laughs> specimen and, and not trying to fill your bag limit. Sure. Um, and that's exactly how, how I approached it when I went down. Um, I took my, my son down there with me and, you know, we, on the way down, we, we discussed um, the natural history of the, of this, the species and, and the fact that there's just not tons of them. And we both agreed that, that one was going to be sufficient and, uh, and they weren't easy to hunt. They weren't easy to find, but we did find one and, and we brought that one home and we stopped right after that, and we were we were just on you know over the moon thrilled with with our one squirrel you know, and that's that's one thing I, I struggle with. I hate to even mention it because it, it gives it credit, but the fact that folks you know a lot of hunters think small game are for children um, is just is just ludicrous in my mind. You know these these are amazing animals, and and that one specific species you know just going down there and and being fortunate to harvest one was just as exciting for me as any deer I've ever shot. Sure. Um, well, and there are a lot of Merns quail hunters or Montezuma quail hunters mm-hmm. that feel like that is the king of, you know, yeah. that to them is just as important as harvesting a big bull elk. Right. You know, if they harvest a, a male and a female Merns quail or even just a Merns quail, you know, <laughs> 
that to them is very important. And so there are a lot of small game hunters that are extremely passionate about the species that they hunt and, and rightly so. Yeah. I'm so, certainly one of those. Yeah. That, that, that one Chiricahua fox or Mexican fox squirrel, which I should say, um, you know, Southeast Arizona and those, those mountains down there that are referred to as sky islands, you know, they're the tip top of, uh, of a habitat range and a mountain range that, that goes down into Mexico. So the, that species has a much larger range in Mexico, but right. here in Arizona, we only get them in that one mountain range. But uh, we brought that squirrel home and we only had one. Um, so we wanted to, to do something special with it. And we ended up uh, making chili Rolanos. Oh, nice. Yeah, so we had Chiricahua fox squirrel chili Rolanos. It was the first time we made Rolanos as well. It was a lot of fun, and it turned out to be delicious as well. So, so yeah, I guess with that, um, let's let's talk about uh, the Arizona Small Game Challenge. Okay, well, like you said just a minute ago, you know, small game is not just a kid's, uh, you know, it's for adults too. And one of the things that is so nice about small game is that it's everywhere. You can go just about anywhere in the state and find small game. And there's lots of opportunities spread all over. And so um, the small game challenge, we designed that a handful of years ago to encourage people to get out, to explore new areas. You know, as a big game hunter, typically you have your unit or two that are your favorites and you have your favorite hunting secret spot (laughs) or favorite water hole or whatever. And so you don't tend to do a lot of broader exploration in in a lot of cases and with small game you know you can hike miles and miles just chasing quail or squirrels and uh, you can go anywhere from the high mountains and the Kaibab plateau down to desert country you know hunting ducks and and geese and cranes and squirrels and quail and and so there's lots of lots of places to get out and see and so we have we designed four different challenges that were, um, I guess, targeting different, all of them targeting different species or suites of species that were, you know, like we have the desert challenge that are all species that you can find in the desert ecosystems. And then the mountain species and the upland challenge and, and what's the fourth one? <laughs> Let's see. We have mountain, a, upland, yeah. mountain, desert, oh, upland, a native desert, quail and a native quail. Yep. And yep. so, you know, being able to just learn, like go to those places, explore those places, but then also learning about the natural history and how to hunt each of those animals mm-hmm. efficiently, you know, learning where they are, what their behaviors are, what times of day they're active. And, and those kinds of things are all part of that small game challenge. And, you know, it's a great way to involve young hunters. It's a great way to involve old hunters. It's a great way to involve adults who are just learning to hunt and, and being able to harvest something and then come home because half the fun is, you know, like you've alluded to is eating whatever you harvest and sharing that with other people and having, swapping those stories across the table as you're enjoying a meal with, with the species that you've harvested and, the nice thing about small game too, you know, is you can take like your your sandhill crane, you can try that a number of different ways and you can harvest enough of something that you can try try it braised and try it roasted and try it smoked and try it, you know, whatever, stir fried and and so um, there's lots of opportunity there and and really that's what this challenge is about. Mm-hmm. And with the we partnered with uh, the Valley of the Sun Quail Forever uh, group. 
And Quail Forever is a national group that is uh, focused on habitat and habitat for quail, but habitat improvements for quail benefit a lot of species, not just the quail. And so they, here in the in the Valley of the Sun chapter here in Phoenix, um, they match. You know, it's a, a registration fee for the for the challenge, and you have a full calendar year starting September first <laughs> till August thirtieth the next year to complete your given challenge, whatever you choose. And it's a $25 registration fee that then goes, that they match dollar for dollar on the ground to do habitat work here in Arizona. And so it's a great win-win for the hunter who gets out and gets to try new things and maybe hunt new species or explore new areas uh, or, and or get somebody else involved. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, the habitat work that the Valley of the Sun gets to do here on the ground with those contributions and at the end of the challenge year, you get a nice little commemorative plaque in the shape of Arizona, and you can put your, your we send you a, a tab that, you know, lists your particular challenge and the year that it's completed, and so you can put those tabs on the, on the plaque, and you can do the same challenge every year for a number of years if you want, or you mm -hmm. can progress through, I think the, the desert challenge is the easiest, uh, you know, and an opening day of dove season, I had four of the five species required. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so, the, you know, the, that's the easiest one. And then the native quail, I think, is the next one. And then the mountain challenge. And then the upland is the ultimate. That's why it's yeah. the ultimate, because yeah. it's chasing chuckers and mm -hmm. grouse. And, it's a struggle. And it's a real struggle. Yeah, band-tailed pigeons and lots of other things. Yeah. So, Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll add a couple things. Uh, one... Valley of the Sun Quail Forever is an affiliate of ours, the Arizona Wildlife Federation, and they do exceptional habitat work. So, so I will just add my two cents that I know for a fact that money is going to good on the ground habitat work. And as someone who has has been working on this challenge for the last four years and should be finishing it this year, <laughs> but I'm not. Um, if if you go into this thinking, ah, oh, this is fun for kids, this is fun for beginners. Um, yeah, you're going to be surprised. Don't um, pick the mountain or the ultimate. It's a tough one, yeah. <laughs> um, so I've done it the last four years. Um, successful the first three years. My first year was the desert challenge. And and uh, like you said, that one was pretty easy. You know, the, yeah. at least those species are more abundant, more accessible. Um, then I went on to native quail, which, you know, I've got a dog. I'm going to do all three species every year anyway. So that one was, was pretty breezy for me. But if you don't have a dog and you're not familiar with, with where those birds live, it's going to be tough. Yeah. Then the mountain challenge, that one was that one was pretty tough, um, mostly because travel requirements and timing of seasons. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, some of those seasons are very short. Yeah, bantail pigeons, mm -hmm. not very long, you know. And, you know, you got to get up there for grouse. Uh, chucker is part of that. Unfortunately, you don't have to get all of them. You have to get, you know, I, I, the number, numbers are like there, five yeah. out of five seven. Five out of seven, something, something yeah. like that. And then finally, the ultimate upland challenge. You're required all three species of quail. You're required uh, a grouse, and you are required a chucker. Um, all pretty doable, except for that that damn chucker. Um, <laughs> so for me, I, I did go after. It really uh, is your Moby Dick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, and you know, it's it's with with my uh, somewhat anal retentive personality, it is killing me that I have consecutive years up until this year. And now, yeah. now I have to skip and wait till next year because uh, I failed at the last day of grouse season. Uh, but I'm blaming it on on a recent move. Uh, my wife and I bought our first home. 
up in the Flagstaff area, and that has been a challenge and eaten up all of my time. So, so that's my excuse this year for not finishing well, it. Any so. luck, the benefit of that is you can hunt out your back door, right? Yes. So. Yeah, I'm a lot closer where those chucker live now, so yeah. so I can make those trips up there more often. But yeah, it's tough. And you know, I, also I'll point out that this is not like a rack them and stack them numbers thing you know it's not about going out and killing a whole bunch of animals um, it's about getting out uh, experiencing new habitats learning about new species seeing new places you know i probably would not have gone after chucker in arizona if it wasn't for this challenge yeah. you know i'd be going up to utah or someplace um, but because of this you know i i'm i'm getting out and i'm exploring some amazing places in arizona looking for these species so it's just been a blast um you know and I, I almost feel childish, uh, but the excitement I get when I get that little plaque in the mail after after oh, good. <laughs> finishing one is uh, is is yeah, yeah. yeah more exciting than I care to admit. But um, so yeah, uh, I think this has gone on a while. We have covered a ton of diverse opportunities in our state. Again, this is why I love Arizona because we have all of this opportunity. You know, yep. um, I, I just never get tired of of exploring these new places and chasing these different species. I, I enjoy it from the research on the computer and in books to, to the, the trips themselves to bringing those animals home and, and, you know, cooking them in diverse ways. I enjoy every little bit of it. Um, that's not to say I don't enjoy elk and deer and javelina. I do just as much, but, uh, you know, the, these small game species, I think they deserve just as much respect. Certainly. So. Yeah, I would agree. Well, with that, Larissa, I want to say thanks for joining us and thank you for the work you do here in Arizona, providing these opportunities and thanks for talking with us. Much appreciated. Look forward to it. Right on. Take care. Well, I hope you enjoyed that chat with Larissa as much as I did. I hope you took some notes. I hope you have lots of new ideas and you're going to spend your summer well, other than fishing and hiking and camping, I hope you're going to spend it daydreaming about next fall and all of the great opportunities that you have to look forward to. So with that, um, well, I also hope to see you down at the Arizona Game and Fish Department's Outdoor Expo. Again, please come by and say hello to me. I'm going to be at the Arizona Wildlife Federation table with my awesome colleagues. And I heard Ranger Rick is going to be there as well. So bring the kids by. And we'll see you again in two weeks. Thanks so much and enjoy your time outside.